Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Oh, you all are going to love this episode today. On today's episode, we're discussing insomnia. Do you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep? Are you staring at the clock every night? Are you scrolling on your phone, looking at Facebook and Instagram at 3 o'clock in the morning while eating a chocolate chip cookie? You don't know my life, Dr. Randy. You don't know my life at all. Okay, little sleepyhead, I don't know your life at all. Well, let's help you get better sleep. This week, I have on physician and certified clinical sleep specialist and sleep coach, Dr. Angela Holliday-Bell. Dr. Holliday-Bell obtained her MD from the University of Illinois in Chicago and completed her training as a physician in Washington, D.C., where she went to receive her certification in clinical sleep health. Her sleep blog has been featured as one of the top 50 blogs in sleep, and she has contributed to a number of online and print publications. She is the founder and CEO of her company, The Solutionist Sleep. It was created to help people everywhere live happier, healthier, and more productive lives through better sleep. Do you want to get better sleep? Well, find out how on this episode. So let's go on call with Dr. Holiday Bell. And don't forget to fill out the short Healthy People survey in the show description so I can learn more about you, my audience. And follow me on social media at underscore Dr. Randy on Instagram, Twitter. And for some reason, I have a TikTok now. Um, You can follow me on there. We're doing random things and starting a TikTok. I don't have any videos up there now, but they're coming. But you you can go and follow me. So let's go on call with Dr. Holiday Bell. Today we have Dr. Holiday Bell on the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Bell? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about sleep. It's my favorite subject. (laughs) What got you into sleep medicine? You know, it's so interesting. So uh, I'm actually a board certified pediatrician uh, by training, Mm -hmm. but what I kind of like fell into the world of sleep medicine in that I've always had a long, strong, passionate relationship with sleep. But as you can imagine, as I went throughout medical training, medical school, residency, sleep became harder and harder to get and to come by. And I saw what Mm -hmm. a significant toll it was taking in my life, both mentally, physically, I was just not myself. And I was like, something has to change because I can't continue to go on like this. So it actually started with me like doing my own research about sleep spending time in the sleep uh, medicine clinic in my uh, residency just as an elective, like on my own time, reading countless books about sleep, learning all I could about it, and then putting into practices the principles that I learned on how to improve my sleep. And once I did that, I felt like a completely different person. Like my mood was better, my health was better. I was such a better person overall. And I knew that that was something I had to share with other people. Not to mention as a pediatrician, you know, sleep is brought up in every single visit from that first newborn visit and parents are going crazy because they can't get sleep to toddler visits to school age children, adolescents, and even the parents themselves are like, how do I fix my sleep? Um, so I knew that it was something that patients needed as well. Uh, so that um, motivated me to get specific training in sleep. I became certified in clinical sleep health. Uh, the rest is history. I kind of started educating people about sleep, and now I do uh, consultations and uh, seminars to help you know people everywhere improve their sleep. Okay. So what did you recognize kind of in yourself early on that made you realize that you had a problem with your sleeping habits or sleep in general? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's interesting because I think when you're younger, you're able to kind of get by on less sleep. So like, you know, in college, there are times you pull, you know, an all-nighter or or stay up late and I was fine. 
when I was realizing as I got a little bit older that that was no longer fine. I would wake up with headaches in the morning. I was exhausted all throughout the day. I had no motivation to do anything. So I would wake up, go to work, come home, lay down because I just literally was too tired to do anything else. It affected my mood. I was so irritable. I was snappier with people. Like it was just a very frustrating kind of cycle for me. Um, and the the hard part about insomnia or like a sleep is it's like a snowball effect. So you start with poor sleep and then you try to do things like drink a bunch of coffee or things like that to improve your sleep and then that makes sleep or to improve your alertness and then that makes sleep worse and so it like so on and so forth. So it just it just took a toll of me uh mentally and physically and I was just not myself at all. Did you have some kind of aha moment for yourself? Like did you learn something in class or you start trying to pinpoint certain things like what's causing me to feel this way? Yeah, I think it was just one day and I think it was it was probably like a weekend day. Like I didn't even have any work related um things that I had to do that day and still I was so exhausted that I just didn't even want to do anything. And if anybody knows in residency, a free day is like, man, like you take advantage of that. You go hang out with people, you do things. I'm I'm married mm-hmm. and I was just like, I didn't want to do anything. Um, because I was just so tired and I felt like I had gotten to my wit's end because I tried everything. I tried melatonin, I tried trazodone, I tried all these things and nothing was helping. And so it got to a point that I was like, okay, like my doctor mind started to kick in. I'm like, what would you do to your patients? Like, this is a problem you need to solve. You need to educate yourself on how to fix it. You need to start to put that into place. So I think it was just once I got to that breaking point of like, even when I don't have to get up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning to go to work, I'm off. And I still can't enjoy my day or enjoy my time because I'm so exhausted and I've tried everything else. That was a moment that I was like, okay, you really need to learn what's going on. and how to All right. So you practice as a pediatrician and is sleep medicine now your primary focus? Uh, so, you know, it's dual. It's both. So it's kind of like half and half. Okay. I still practice as a pediatrician. I have my clinic. I see babies through adolescents. And within the field, so within my current clinic, I'm like the sleep specialist there. So I do even sleep consultations, but with my you know patients at that clinic, my colleagues who have patients who have sleep issues, send them right out like, you need to talk to Dr. Holiday Bell. Um, <laughs> so I do practice my sleep within the realm of being a general pediatrician. But outside of that, when I'm not in clinic, I actually practice mostly with adults. Um, so I spend a lot of time doing kind of virtual consultations. I do a lot of talks with um, with different companies on helping their employees get better sleep and be more productive. Um, and then I put out kind of educational and uh, informational uh, material as well to kind of educate the masses on sleep. Okay. So what was kind of involved in the training that you had to do to become a sleep specialist? Yeah, so I had to spend a lot of time um, in the sleep medicine clinic. I actually worked mostly with the sleep psychologists in my sleep medicine clinic, which is interesting because I'm a physician, but I deal mostly with behavioral sleep issues, which is the vast majority of sleep issues. So there are there are diseases um, or uh, sleep states that require kind of physical interventions like obstructive sleep apnea, um, restless leg syndrome, and those are more medical sleep uh, disorders. I deal with behavioral sleep disorders like insomnia, when you're not putting the right practices into place, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I spent a lot of time with the sleep psychologist uh, and learning more about those practices, which was excellent. I had to take a course uh, to be certified as a clinical sleep specialist. And interestingly, in that course, I had to learn how to read sleep studies, how to know if someone had you know, sleep apnea. I had to learn the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy, and I had to uh, spend time putting those things into place. So I would say all that happened over actually uh, a couple of years before I was officially certified. Um, and then separate from that, a lot has been just kind of my own kind of self-study, digging into like, I read the book uh, that was written by the founder of Sleep Medicine. Like he founded the Sleep Stages, which was so fascinating and like so many other things just to really give me a good solid foundation on what sleep is, because I think that's so important. Like why do we sleep? What, what regulates that? What governs it? You kind of need to understand that before you can understand how to fix it. So I kind of uh, took it from different angles. And even now, so I always kind of educating myself and learning more so I can, you know, pass that on to my, to my patients. So you kind of mentioned it earlier, sleep stages. Can you break down some of the sleep stages? Yeah. So there are a few different types of sleep stages um, that have their own function. So you have N1, which is your lightest sleep stage. And this is a sleep stage that, 
you don't even you may not even recognize that you're sleeping so it's kind of that stage if you're lying on a couch or you're listening to a boring uh you know television show or lecture or whatever you're kind of nodding off and you're like wait was i was i sleep and that's like in one that's that very light kind of transitional sleep stage you have Hopefully stage nobody's in nodding off right now never of course not right because this, <laughs> this is important this is uh something to keep you alert um, and then you have stage in two, which is a little bit deeper than that, but not your deepest sleep stage. So you're transitioning from that light sleep into your uh, into your deeper sleep. If you have in three, which is your deep, slow wave sleep, this is actually the most restorative um, part of your sleep. So this is when your cells restore themselves, your body replenishes, and you're in a very deep stage. This is the stage that is hardest to wake from. And then you have your REM or rapid eye movement sleep. And that's where most, actually not all, but most of your dreaming occurs. During this sleep stage is when your body is actually paralyzed. So you have a muscle paralysis, even though your mind is super active. And if you actually look at the sleep activity during rapid eye movement sleep, it's almost the same as when you're awake. So your mind is very active, it's going. This is when you're uh, having most of your dreams, but your body is paralyzed. Uh, but this is where a lot of uh, learning is cemented in this stage. So things that you've learned uh, during the day or the skills that you picked up, even mechanical things like if you were learning like a, a dance routine or something like that, those memories are cemented and moved into your longer term uh, memory during the REM stage. And what happens is you actually cycle through all these stages throughout the night. For most people, it's an average of about five times per night. You spend about 90 minutes total. You go from N1, N2, N3, very deep. You go to the rapid eye movement, and then there's a transition, and you start over again each night, or each 90-second uh, interval. Okay. So with insomnia, is there any particular stage that people have a problem in getting to or staying in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so it can be variable. Is it for different people? What I will say is oftentimes, uh, let me start by saying, you get more of your rapid eye movement sleep later in the night. So in the second half of the night, early morning is when you spend more time relative to the other sleep stages in the rapid eye movement sleep. So individuals with insomnia often have problems uh, like staying asleep or or um, like waking up too early. And um, what happens is they end up missing out some of that rapid eye movement sleep. So there's actually something called REM rebound, such that if you miss a couple nights of sleep, your body actually causes you to have more REM sleep on subsequent nights to try to make up for that. Um, so I would say a lot of people who have insomnia end up missing the REM sleep. Also, though, there's a there's a lack of uh, that N3 or deep, slow wave restorative sleep. So one, I would say two big triggers of insomnia are stress and anxiety, right? You're really stressed, you're really worked up. It's very difficult for your mind to transition into the relaxed state even for sleep. So that can keep you in the lighter in one, in two sleep stages. Your body senses stress as like a as a threat. So it doesn't want to go too deeply into sleep because there's a threat. And what if something happens? I need to be alert and I need to be able to wake up easily. So it keeps you in those lighter stages. And that is why oftentimes, even if people get more sleep than they you know, um, that they think should make them feel rested because they don't get into that deeper sleep, they still feel very unrested and not refreshed and the body doesn't have time to restore. So I'll say usually N3 and REM are the ones that you miss out on the most in insomnia. So how do you define insomnia as a clinician? I know some people may come and I have trouble sleeping, but this has been only going on for two days. I got insomnia. No, technically you don't have insomnia <laughs> yet. So I know it has to be a longer time period. How do you define insomnia? Yeah, so I would say, you know, I break it up into acute versus chronic insomnia. Most patients I work with have chronic insomnia. And so that difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep at least three nights a week for at least three months, that is chronic insomnia. Mm -hmm. Uh, acute insomnia is less well-defined because it's like less than three months, but you're right. It has to be more than a day or so because everybody has a couple of bad nights of sleep. I certainly go through a couple of bad nights of sleep. There could be something stressful going on. There could be something physically that's causing you pain. There could be something you're excited about the next day and it's hard to fall asleep, right? So just one or two nights of bad sleep does not equal insomnia. But I would say for sure, if on average, three or more nights a week, you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep and you're not waking up feeling refreshed, and if that's been going on, I really say, you know, longer than at least a month or so, then I'm like, okay, we're definitely dealing with insomnia and longer than three months where that chronic insomnia. So what are some of the typical causes for people to have insomnia? So usually 
there is some inciting event that disrupts someone's sleep, right? So a big move can disrupt your sleep. A new job can disrupt your sleep. Uh, a death in a family or, or a friend can disrupt your sleep, right? And that's a, a kind of natural, normal stress response uh, of our bodies and brains that something is going on that throws us off emotionally or makes us more stressed. We have increasing cortisol and stress levels, and that makes it difficult to fall asleep. The problem, though, is that should happen for a short period of time, transiently, right? So this happens, but once that trigger and that stressor is gone, your sleep should revert, revert back to normal. What ends up happening with a lot of people with chronic insomnia is they have this inciting event. They then engage in behaviors um, that actually worsen their sleep, such that when the event is over, because they've engaged in these behaviors, now this has become a chronic insomnia because they have so many unhealthy sleep practices around them. And that's what leads to the propagation of poor sleep. There's also a genetic component in that there are some people who are more likely to kind of fall over the edge of that trigger. So there's like, if you have a significant um, like family history of insomnia, you're more likely to have insomnia. That means you're going to, you're more likely to. And then there's a perpetuating event that makes you have a short-term insomnia. And then, uh, I'm sorry, inciting event. And then you engage in perpetuating uh, behaviors that make the, the insomnia continue long-term. Okay, I didn't know that. So genetics can play a factor in you having insomnia? Absolutely, absolutely. It kind of, it just, so if, if the bar for insomnia is here, there are some people that start way down here and it's going to take so much for them to reach this bar. But genetically speaking, there are some people that are, that start here, right? So it only takes a much smaller um, uh, trigger to kind of take them over the edge. So it's, it's similar to other things like mental health diseases, anxiety, depression, just because genetically you are more prone to it doesn't mean you're definitely going to have it, but it definitely makes it easier to trigger those things. In them. Right. So it may not be you. It may be your mom or dad that you need to go blame them because you can't <laughs> go to sleep. They might be stressing you out for other reasons, but then they also playing that genetic component too as well. So they exactly. they screwing you over twice. It's like everything else. Yes, absolutely. Right. So how much do, does uh, mental health disorders play into sleeping and insomnia? Huge, huge bi-directional relationship between mental health disorders and insomnia. We know that individuals who have depression are based on some studies, four to five times as likely to develop insomnia as well. Um, and then same with anxiety, at least two to three times more likely to develop insomnia. And it's almost like a chicken and egg uh, type of thing with those because we know that insomnia can be a symptom of depression. What we're realizing now though, is that they really are two separate entities in that if you take someone with depression um, and you treat that depression, let's say you put them on an SSRI or, you know, they go to therapy and things like that, and they have insomnia, you don't necessarily treat the insomnia just because you treated the depression. And the outcomes of the treatment of their depression are improved if you also treat the insomnia. So they are two separate entities, but they often will co-occur. And I think that's just based on the, the typical etiologies of insomnia or reasons behind insomnia, which, again, stress, anxiety, um, things that make you more worked up and increase your cortisol level are going to make it more difficult for you to fall and stay asleep. Uh, and so I think they co-occur for that reason, but it's not necessarily um, as clear like which happens first. Having insomnia definitely increases your risk for depression and anxiety as well. I'm sure chronic pain also plays a factor as well. I had a patient this week who basically she has a lot of chronic pain going on and was asking me about insomnia and is the pain causing her trouble falling asleep? I said, probably so. You can't find a good position to go to sleep. And then I'm sure the chronic pain makes you feel depressed. Depression leads to insomnia. So it's kind of like a vicious cycle that you're kind of in right now. A hundred percent. Individuals with chronic pain are significantly more likely to uh, develop insomnia and for all the reasons you just said. I think, you know, when it comes to sleep, a lot of us view sleep as like something we could just turn on and turn off. And I know some people who do have that ability to just stop what they're doing and go to sleep and, you know, good for those people. I am not one of those people. It, it is a transitional period, right? You have to go from a state of all this mental activity. You're going to work. You may be taking care of family, taking care of kids. There's so much going on. You're stressed and rushed. And then all of a sudden, all of that has to start for you to fall asleep, right? And so it's difficult for people to kind of make that transition that they need for that to happen. If you're in chronic pain, 
your body is always worked up. It's always in that state. And it's often worse at night when there's nothing else to distract you from the pain. So during the day, you have so much going on that you may not think about it as much. At night, all you have to think about is your pain. And so it's, again, is that signal to your body that something is not right. And your brain is saying, okay, something is not right. We have to deal with this pain as opposed to allowing you to make the transition into sleep. So it's really difficult for individuals who suffer from chronic pain to um, to really get the good quality sleep they need. And the mental effects that come along with that, anxiety, stress, depression, all of those things definitely will interfere with sleeping. So you mentioned earlier about bad sleeping habits. What are some of the common bad sleeping habits that you know that your patients do on a regular basis? Oh, gosh. So the first thing is going to sleep and waking up at different times. Um, and especially like on the weekend. So when I tell patients like, okay, you need to go to sleep at the same time each night, wake up at the same time each day. Like, oh, yeah, I do that. I do that already. You know, when I got to go to work, I go to sleep at nine, wake up at six. I'm like, okay, what time do you go to sleep and wake up on the weekends? Oh, you know, I'm out to like midnight, one, and I wake up at like 10 o'clock. And I'm like, that is problematic for some, not for everybody. Some people can do it fine, mm -hmm. but your body likes routine. And in order to entrain your circadian rhythm to know when to get sleepy and when to wake up, you have to keep that routine and that 24-hour cycle the same. So when you... Uh, when you change that, especially significantly, like more than several hours over the weekend, you're actually causing your body to experience what's called a jet lag, like a social jet lag. It's almost like you're traveling across different time zones and now you're trying to backtrack when Monday comes and that's very difficult and that's confusing to your body. So now it's like, wait, do we fall asleep at nine or is it midnight? It's hard to know when to get sleepy. And then same thing for when you wake up. So really one of the biggest things people can do for their sleep is go to sleep about the same time each night and more importantly, wake up about the same time uh, in the morning. The other thing is a lot of people don't have bedtime routine. So I, I've seen a pediatrician, I work with kids. We are very, I feel like people are very good with giving their children bedtime routine. So we're gonna brush our lights off, we're gonna brush our teeth, we're gonna read a book, I'm gonna tuck you in, we're gonna do this and then you fall asleep. But then as adults, we're just like, oh, we're just done with our day, we just hop into bed and go to sleep. And what you're doing with the bedtime routine is you're training your brain to connect that routine to falling asleep, such that once you start the routine, your brain is already getting itself prepared for sleep mode because it's so connected. Your brain tries to make connection, as many connections to different parts of the day and activities as possible because it wants to run as efficiently as it can. So when you connect that routine to falling asleep, it triggers to your brain, okay, it's time to fall asleep. I, I always tell people, it's like when you go in the kitchen, you weren't even hungry or thirsty, but for some reason you find yourself reaching in the refrigerator or something. That's because your brain has a kitchen to eating and drinking. And you want to have that same kind of relationship with sleep and your bedtime routine. And then also what you do in your bed. So I would tell people bed should be used for sleep and sex only and no other activities because mm -hmm. if you want your brain to connect that bed with falling asleep and that is all. If you're on your bed answering emails and talking on the phone and eating, then once you get in bed, you're like, okay, your brain is like, what do I do? Is it dinner time? Are we talking about like, what are we doing? And you, if you dilute that relationship that your brain has between your bed and sleep. So you want to kind of keep everything surrounding your sleep and your bedtime as sacred as possible. My bed is only for sleep and adult activities. I make sure I have a bedtime routine that my brain can easily connect with sleep and I'm making sure that I'm going to sleep and waking up around the same time each day. I love that advice. I tell my patients the same thing. So it makes me feel better that I'm telling them the correct things because you're even more trained than me in this department. But I tell them that as well, that when your eyes and brain see the bed, it's only two things that are about to happen. Intercourse or going to sleep. Not that it's time to get in the bed and start reading a book, time to start eating. Like, no, we got to train your brain. 100%. Yeah, you are steering them exactly in the right direction. It's 100%. So how do you feel about TVs being in the bedroom? Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't like TVs being in the bedroom, I'm just speaking honestly, only because, so I feel that all electronics should be powered off and, uh, and like put to the side an hour before bedtime because the blue light that's emitted from them, even if it's low, a low amount of light can delay the release of your melatonin release and make it more likely that you struggle to fall asleep. And even for people who fall asleep um, rather easily, they're still not getting the same kind of melatonin dose that their brain would normally produce if there's blue light emitted stopping you from falling asleep. 
Um, and then another thing is with a TV in the bedroom, you're more likely to watch TV in the bed. Of course, like that's probably mm-hmm. what you're going to do. So again, you're diluting that relationship. Now, I think if you have a TV in the room and you have a separate space in your room that you sit there and you watch TV and it's very disconnected from bedtime, I think that can be okay. Most people are not going to use it in that way. So I say it's safest just to not even practice watching TV in the room. But I would say definitely have it disconnected from bedtime. Like I always say, even an hour before bed, if you have dimmable lights, like dim the lights, keep uh, just like little bedside lamps on. You want to keep the overall light emission low because that helps to signal to your brain okay, it's time to fall asleep. Let's start this melatonin release. Let's make it easier to make that transition. How much does alcohol play into factors for insomnia? It can be a huge factor depending on how you use it. So alcohol has a half hour, like three to four hours. And the thing is, oftentimes individuals will use alcohol as a nightcap, right? Because initially it makes you sleepy. So you have a couple glasses of wine, you have a little bit of a drink, you start to feel kind of relaxed and it makes you fall asleep. And that is true. Initially, alcohol is a depressant that can make you fall asleep. The problem is once it's metabolized, it actually becomes a stimulant. So even though you may fall asleep easier, it disrupts your quality of sleep. So you're more likely to have multiple nighttime awakenings. Um, you're less likely to get into those deeper stages of sleep if you have alcohol within three to four hours of bedtime. Um, so it's confusing for people because they feel like, oh, this is fine because it makes me sleepy, but it disrupts the quality of sleep. And quality is actually a lot more important than quantity, even when it comes to mm-hmm. sleep. So I say if you want to have like, you know, a little glass of wine with dinner, that's okay. I would try to keep that three hours before bedtime, at least indefinitely don't drink, you know, multiple, um, multiple cups because that definitely can disrupt your sleep. Is there anything that people should look out for um, to assess if they're getting good quality sleep? Like how should they feel in the morning or feel throughout the day, things that they should look for? Absolutely. So this actually um, points to my definition of your sleep needs. So always one of the most common questions I'm asked is how much sleep do I need? How much sleep should I be getting? And I always say, well, it depends because there is no one size fits all. Sleep needs like a shoe size, right? There's an average, like I think the average woman's shoe size is seven, average men's shoe size is 10 or something like that. However, some people wear an 11, nine, you know, whatever. There's no one size fits all. You need to find what your sleep need is. And to determine that is how many hours of sleep you need to wake up feeling refreshed and having the energy to get through your day and normal activities without needing additional substances such as caffeine. Uh, So whatever that number is for you, that's how much sleep you need. So you should be waking up feeling refreshed, no morning headaches. You should have energy to complete your normal daily activities, and you should not need any other substances to help you feel awake and alert. That's how much sleep you need. So for instance, I need a solid nine to nine and a half hours. I know this. I've experimented. I've tried less. (laughs) I need nine to nine and a half. If I get seven hours, I'm dead. Like that does not work for me. There are other individuals, seven hours is perfect. That's all that they need. So it's really about finding your individual sleep need, what is going to give you the amount of energy you need throughout the day, and then sticking with trying to get about that. Okay. That's a lot of sleep right there, 10 hours. Man, I wish I could get that. I'm at about like six and a half to seven is what I'm able to function on. Do Do you feel well rested after that? Yeah, I, I feel good. I'm rested. I'm ready to go. I probably have poor sleep hygiene. Like I watch TV before going to bed. I'm bad. Don't listen to Dr. Randy. Listen to Dr. Holiday Bell. She's the expert. That's why we have her on here. So, yeah. and with, you know, some uh, people need some. Go ahead. I was gonna say some people truly do need less. So, like my husband, for instance, needs about six hours of sleep. It's rare that you only need that amount, but he truly does need that amount. He's good. He's ready to go all throughout the day. I would be dying like a zombie off of that amount of sleep. And then the key is, too, that I want people to know is oftentimes I'll get people saying, well, oh, yeah, I mean, I can, I can function on six hours or, or I can get by on six hours. And getting by is not the same as functioning optimally. So just because you can make it through your day does not mean you're functioning optimally. And I want people to function at their best. I want them to function optimally. I want them to have the the most energy that they can have. I want them to have the mental clarity, the efficiency, and all the benefits that come with sleep. And that only comes from getting the ideal amount of sleep you need and not the amount that you can just get by. So you kind of mentioned earlier about your brain being able to organize things in certain areas of sleep. 
getting the right amount. I totally agree, especially from medical school. When I didn't get enough sleep, I felt like I didn't retain the information as well. And so when I got better quality sleep, I'm like, oh, I'm actually remembering these things for these tests that I need to study. Me staying up for like hours on end is like being counterproductive. So my question with that, are there anything else that better sleep leads you to? For example, your blood pressure doing better or your immune system functioning better because you're getting better quality sleep? Yes, all of that. It's actually easier to say what sleep doesn't improve than to say what it does improve because all the things. So your body's immune system functions more optimally when you're sleeping. So I always to get people to understand this point, it's like when you have the flu or when you're really sick, what do you want to do? You want to sleep all the time, right? Like you're dead, you want to sleep. And that's because that's when your body kicks up all those things, the cytokines, the antibodies, all of those things are significantly more elevated when you're sleeping. There was actually a study done on um, several individuals, all healthy individuals, no chronic medical conditions. Um, it tracked individual sleep for uh, 14 days and then it exposed them to the rhinovirus. And the rhinovirus is the virus that causes the common cold. It then quarantined mm -hmm. them and then tracked who developed cold symptoms. And individuals who slept less than seven hours at night, 14 days prior to being exposed, were three times as likely to develop symptoms of the rhinovirus than those who got enough sleep. And that's because your body is functioning at its best, your immune system is functioning at its best when you're getting enough sleep. The other thing is uh, in terms of cardiovascular risk. So you're uh, more likely to experience uh, high blood pressure and heart disease if you're not getting enough sleep. And the reason for that is actually simple when you think about it. When you're not getting enough sleep, your body goes into a, a high stress state. And as I mentioned, your cortisol level or the stress hormone is increased when you're not getting enough sleep. That increase in stress hormone leads to inflammation. And that widespread inflammation in your body leads to weakening of your blood uh, blood vessels, leads to irregularities in um, your um, um, in your heart function, in your blood, uh, in the control of your blood pressure. So it's basically like you're putting your body under this state of constant stress and inflammation that over time will lead to these chronic illnesses. Um, you're more likely to gain weight if you don't get enough sleep. So the two hormones that uh, govern satiety or how full you feel are leptin and ghrelin. So ghrelin is a hunger hormone, leptin is a full uh, hormone. Several studies have shown that when you're not getting enough sleep, your body actually produces more of the hunger hormone, so the ghrelin hormone, um, than the leptin hormone. So you're literally hungrier. You're also more likely to make poor uh, choices in the types of food that you eat. And you're less likely to burn in, uh, energy, so to burn calories. So it's like the perfect setup for weight gain. Um, and then weight gain, obesity in itself, also leads to all these chronic uh, diseases. So literally affects all kinds of your health. And then we already talked about how insomnia significantly increases your risk of depression and anxiety. So it's not just your uh, physical health, it's your emotional health. And I think part of that is because the, the part of your brain, um, the emotional centers in your brain and the regulatory neurotransmitters talk when you're asleep. So it helps to control your emotions, literally. When you're not getting enough sleep, you lose that control, you lose that regulation. That's also why you're more irritable. You're like, you know, easier to snap when you don't get enough sleep because you don't have that control that is getting pruned and processed for your sleep. Okay. So, Dr. Randy and Dr. Holiday Bell, I already know I have insomnia. It's been going on for years. What can I do to improve my sleep? Okay, I hear you. We're going to get to the treatment option. So, what are some of the non-pharmacological treatment options that you provide to people that come and see you? Yeah. So, I say the very first thing that I do is rule out medically related sleep issues like obstructive sleep apnea. So for those who don't know, obstructive sleep apnea is when you have a decrease in the oxygen level or a complete obstruction of the oxygen level while you're sleeping. Uh, that oftentimes will lead to heavy, loud snoring and pauses or gasping uh, for air while you're sleeping. That is important because none of the behavioral interventions, they actually may improve your sleep, but they're not going to help the underlying problem. And that in and of itself can lead to really significant chronic uh, diseases. So I always start by ruling that out, things like obstructive sleep apnea, there are circadian rhythm disorders. There are other things that may require or like narcolepsy. So that aside, you know, we start by ruling those things out. You should absolutely see a board certified sleep medicine physician to talk about those treatment options. 
That aside, the majority of the time, it's the cognitive behavioral issues that I talked about before. You had some inciting event that was a stressor and, and disrupted your sleep. You engage the behaviors that cause uh, that disruption to continue, and now you kind of have a snowball effect of chronic insomnia. There are the things that we kind of brought up, which is sleep hygiene, right? So going to sleep at the same time each night, waking up at the same time each day, avoiding electronics before bed, using your bed for sleep and sex only. Um, prioritizing sleep is actually my number one tip. So prioritize sleep. Anything that you want to improve, you want to make it better in your life has to be a priority. If you want to be fit and lose weight, you have to prioritize going to the gym and eating right. Sleep is the same. Prioritize sleep, put that first. Um, but those with a chronic insomnia, it's, it goes deeper than that, right? Like it's, it's not just like simply do these things and that will fix it for a lot of people. And I would say once we're at that longer than three months, we actually have to work on peeling back some of the layers and the things that led to uh, led to the, dis the sleep disruption in order to fix it. And so I also recommend something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that takes individuals through, first of all, learning what sleep is, learning more about what governs sleep or regulates it, but then working on those cognitions that disrupt sleep in the behaviors that got in the way. I would say one, um, one, big thing that we talk about in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is stimulus control. And what we do uh, in that kind of facet of the therapy is, is retrain the brain to connect the bed to sleep. Because for some people, they suffer with insomnia for so long that their bed is a trigger for anxiety. So they may be so tired and, and you know falling asleep on the couch and ready to fall asleep. As soon as they get in the bed, they're white. They're awake. They can't fall asleep or anything. And the natural like, inclination as you Yes. Oh, here we go. I know I'm not going to sleep. I go through this every night. I just can't go through the night like this. How am I going to function at work? All these things start processing and you become more and more anxious and worked up. You get further and further away from sleep. And your natural inclination is to say, okay, if I just lay here as still as possible and as quiet as possible, eventually I will fall asleep. But that's actually counter. That's actually counterproductive because what you're doing is further connecting being in the bed with that anxious uh, uh, thought process and the anxiety and stress that comes around it. So you're further telling your brain, yep, this is where we get stressed every night and we stay up for hours thinking about how we're going to fall asleep. So what you should actually do if you're not able to fall asleep, so if you get in bed and it's 15 minutes or longer, you can't fall asleep, get out of your bed, go to a separate space, do some type of relaxing activity. So I always say have at least a few things that you already can do. So like reading a book under dim light, uh, making a laundry or making a grocery list, folding laundry, actually like adult coloring books, like something that is relaxing that you don't really have to think too hard to do and do that activity until you get sleepy again. Get sleepy again, go back to your bed. Same thing each time you feel like you can't sleep. It sounds crazy, but what that does is retrains your brain to say, no, the bed is where we sleep. If we're worked up and we're anxious, we do that in a separate space and we don't go back to the bed until we're sleepy. And so that helps to take away those negative cognitions, the anxiety, the stress that you're so used to having surrounding sleep. It makes it easier for you to transition into that sleep state. Um, but that just, you know, it takes time. So I, I, I definitely recommend seeing uh, someone who's trained in it, someone like myself, a certified sleep specialist who can take you through that process and really help to, to rewire your brain to connect the bed with sleep. And then there are some helpful supplements that I do like for sleep. So magnesium is an excellent sleep supplement. supplement. Specifically, magnesium glycinate. Um, it just helps to relax the muscles, relax the nervous system. It makes it easier to facilitate the transition um, from awake, uh, the awake state to sleep state. So I personally take magnesium every single night. Uh, I think melatonin can be helpful if used judiciously in the right situation. So it generally is not the kind of, you know, end all be all. But if you just had like a short period where your sleep was disrupted or your sleep schedule had to be disrupted for some reason, say as a parent, your kid was sick, and so you're waking up multiple times at night or you just got done traveling, that's a, a helpful way to get things back on track very short term. And then you should be able to dish that and kind of get back into your normal uh, rhythm. I know some of my friends give their kids melatonin. Do you have an opinion on that? Because I know they'll be like, hey, come get your candy. And they get their little candy thinking, <laughs> thinking it's a little nice little uh, Scooby snack. And next thing you know, they knocked out and they bringing them upstairs. Yeah, I do not like melatonin for kids. Uh, most of the time, it's, it's, 
the parents' fault. Sorry, parents out there. Uh, because really, when it comes to kids' sleep, their sleep drive is so much higher than us, and they need so much more sleep that as long as they have the right um, kind of sleep schedule, bedtime routine, parameters surrounding sleep, they really should be able to facilitate sleep on their own. So I think, number one, you're kind of setting up this uh, foundation of them relying on a supplement to fall asleep, and that's never good because you want to build those healthy sleep practices in them. I think, you know, for now, the research that we have on melatonin is all fairly uh, is all fairly good. So we, we don't have any evidence that melatonin is bad for you. However, we don't have a lot of long-term studies and we don't have a lot of studies. So when it comes to stuff like that, it, it's just safer to not use that just because we don't know what the effects are, right? I think in adults who use it short-term, I have no problem with it, but I think for kids, you're just setting a negative precedent. So I say it's more important to focus on building healthy sleep habits that they can take with them throughout their entire lives than to uh, than to rely on a sleep supplement. The other thing is, again, even though I feel like for the most part, melatonin is safe, melatonin is not regulated, right? It's not FDA regulated. Mm -hmm. So there are different substances in melatonin, like serotonin and other things that's not tested for. And the amount of melatonin in each individual bottle is different. Even from the same manufacturer, you can get two of bottles if there are different amounts of, of melatonin. So you don't actually know what you're getting. So short term, it's probably okay, but but it's safe as not to do that long term. And if you start your kid off that way, you're more likely to use it for a longer term. So I say, dish your melatonin, put healthy sleep practice into place, equip them with what they need to be healthy sleepers as adults, because honestly, that's one of the best things you can do for your kids. Okay. So if my listeners have listened to my other podcast talking about vitamins, Dr. Holiday Bell has said the same thing about some of these over-the-counter medications having different concentrations from one bottle compared to the other. So you may buy one bottle of melatonin at CVS and buy another one at Walgreens and they both have melatonin but different amounts in each bottle. So with... With cognitive behavioral therapy, how long do you do it or try it with a patient before you see that it may not be working and then try to put them on a possible medication? Um, so I personally never do prescription sleep medications. That's not something that I prescribe. Some of my sleep medicine colleagues will go that route if they're like, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy isn't working and they really need to do it. I just personally never do that. So I, just like if they have a medical sleep problem, like a sort of sleep apnea, I will refer and say, okay, you know, you can go to another provider if it's, if it's helping. It's rare that cognitive behavioral therapy, if the principles are adhered to, doesn't help at all. Like it may not give 100% benefit, but for the most part, it, it really should be helpful. So even in my program, I often will wean patients off of sleep medicines that they've, uh, prescription sleep pills that they've taken. Um, the process can can take a little bit. I always say, you know, for most individuals I've seen, this chronic insomnia has been going on for a month, sometimes years. And so the fix is not going to be tomorrow. Like it's going to take time to peel back those layers. But often I would say within four to six weeks, we're able to get in a good place. And what I do is equip them with what they need, the tools they need to continue the process to make their sleep even better. And when something happens that disrupts their sleep again, because it's going to happen, something is going to disrupt your sleep, that's just life. They have the tools they need to deal with that and then get their sleep back on track as opposed to falling, to, falling into those same habits. I would say one big reason that I don't personally love uh, prescription sleep medications is a lot of them do not recreate the normal sleep architecture, right? So I talked about the sleep stages and you go through in one and two and three rim and kind of so on and so forth. A lot of them can put you in more of a sedative state. So if anyone's ever had a procedure that required anesthesia and they put you to sleep, it's not the same thing as the, the sleep that you get at night, that restorative, refreshing sleep that allows your body to refresh and process and all those things. So oftentimes individuals will say, oh yeah, I'm getting eight hours, but now I wake up and I'm still groggy and I don't feel good and I sort of have energy. That's because you're not getting the same restorative eight hours of sleep. And so I say, you know, in a pinch or if it's something that like, otherwise you're only sleeping an hour or two at night, yeah, you can go ahead and start those sleep medications, but let's build up those healthy sleep habits and the principles and then try to wean you off and see if now we can just have that as a backup. If you can't sleep, sometimes it's just helpful mentally mm -hmm. to say, okay, if I really can't sleep, I know there's always something I can take to help me sleep. Uh, so personally, I will try, I will give uh, kind of behavioral therapy in addition to some other supplements, magnesium, there are there are a couple other natural supplements I'll try sometimes too. I'll give that a pretty long try before I uh, would recommend any type of prescription sleep pill. 
Okay. So I know that's not your go-to for those medications like Ambien and Lunesta, but for those who are on those medications or potentially start them, is there a time frame that they should look for as far as efficacy? Um, Usually I know it's like not not day one, but what should they kind of be patient for and look out for time-wise? Yeah, I would say, so I would say a lot of individuals do see a benefit, you know, within the first couple of days of taking it, at least some benefit. And most individuals, we should see some benefit within that first, like, five to seven days. I would say a lot of those medications are, were not ever meant or even formulated, even by the individual who formulated them, for them to be taken long term. So not, you know, not longer than a year, because they often cause development of tolerance, such that you need higher and higher doses to get the same effect. Um of all the sleep medications, I would say probably trazodone is the one that I would recommend more than the others. It just seems to be safer, seems to be more efficacious and have less of the kind of uh, sedative effects. Um, but I would say, you know, it depends. And not every medication works well for every individual. For some, they have significant side effects. For others, they don't. So I think it depends. But I would say at least give it a solid like a week or two to see what the benefit is. I would say be on it as short term as possible. And while you're on it, work on what other sleep practices you put into place to allow you to have the tools to sleep well without the medication. Mm-hmm. How much of a factor does someone's spouse or their partner have on their sleep? It can be huge. Uh, different sleep, either different sleep habits, or if you have a partner who snores, uh, or if you're a light sleeper, your partner moves a lot, it could be huge. And uh, it's often the reason for what what's called a sleep divorce, where individuals will actually, like married individuals, actually end up sleeping in separate bedrooms and call sleep divorce. And it actually happens way more than people uh, realize. And in some situations, I think, you know, sleep can be, you know, an intimate thing, just like having someone, the closeness can release oxytocin and all those things. However, if it isn't mm-hmm. working, it just ain't working. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. the best for the marriage for everybody to get good sleep. Uh, so it can be significant, but I think there are things that you can do to help. So for me, for instance, I will use myself as an example. I'm a very light sleeper. So people think that because you're a sleep specialist, your sleep is perfect. And you're a sleep specialist because your sleep is perfect. It might be the exact opposite. I'm a sleep specialist because I had awful sleep and I knew I had to do something to fix it. And I did that thing to fix it. However, I have very specific parameters that I need for sleep, and I sleep uh, very quickly. And so uh, my husband, you know, he he sometimes can be noisier in his sleep, sometimes can move a lot in his sleep, and that can did lead to some issues. But what we did to work around it was I did things like I'll wear um, sleep headphones at night so that I listen to soothing music so that if there are any ambient noises, I don't hear them. In addition, we got a, a non-motion uh, transfer mattress. So say if he's rolling around and doing whatever, I don't feel it. And it's a king size. So like, you know, you have your space, I have my space. For some individuals, they just need separate comforters. So they have one person has one comforter, the other has another, and then there's a, a bigger one on top of both of them. So I think there are ways to work around it. You just have to be, you know, a little bit uh, creative in the way that you do it. And I think it's important just for each individual to be on the same page about how important sleep is and doing what's necessary to help the other person. Yeah. So what's, what's your opinion on, like you mentioned, you having the headphones on and the ambient noises. Me, I'm a box fan person, no matter how rich I am, I'm going to sleep with a box (laughs) fan on. And sometimes I I throw a weighted blanket on top of me too, because I I feel like I get way more rested sleep on uh, with with having a weighted blanket. So um, what's kind of your opinion on like the ambient noises and benefits of possibly using a weighted blanket? Yeah, so I love all those things. Like, I think those kind of sleep tools are super um, helpful. It can definitely help augment even people who have, like, decent sleep. It can kind of take it to the next level. So I started with, like, ambient noises. So, again, it depends on how deeply you sleep and if noises bother you. Some people, they fall asleep and they're like, I don't hear anything until my alarm goes off in the morning and I'm good. And that's excellent. If you're someone that the floor creaking bothers you or outside noise bothers you or your partner bothers you, then it is helpful to have some ambient noises. Things like white noise helps to kind of calm the the nervous system and oftentimes makes it easier to fall asleep. Similar principle with a fan. So I also sleep with a fan on, having a fan, just the noise from it. In addition to the cool air, actually cool air is helpful for sleep in and of itself. So I think those things are great. I love those. Um, 
love weighted blankets too. So they actually work via the deep pressure touch stimulation principle in that it kind of adds its weight to your body. So it makes your nervous system more aware of the position of your body in space. And that awareness triggers your parasympathetic nervous system, the kind of one that calms everything down to, you know, increase as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system and actually have been shown to make it easier to fall asleep, decreases anxiety and all those things. So I love a good weighted blanket. I love a good sound machine, blackout curtains and masks. So mm-hmm. ambient light, light is the strongest uh, influence on your circadian rhythm. So when it comes to, uh, making you feel awake and alert, the strongest factor relating to that is light. So any light, whether you think it's like a small amount of light, like oftentimes when I have individuals who are like, I'm sleeping, but I can't, for some reason, I wake up so early in the morning or kids who wake up so early in the morning. My first question is, is there any light that comes into your bedroom? And they say, oh yeah, I mean, there's a street light outside or, or yeah, I mean, the sun rises and I see it a little bit and they don't even realize how significant that is. Even with your eyes closed, your retina picks up that light and tells your brain, oh, it's daytime, it's time to wake up. So black that out, blackout curtains, blackout masks, and you don't want any light until it's time to wake up. So I love all of those things for sleep. Okay. Yeah, I love my weighted blanket. The only thing is, like, if I have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, it's like pushing a whole person <laughs> off of me. It's like, uh, 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 oh, man, get up. So uh, t- tell us a little bit about uh, your sleep medicine consultation business. Yeah, so... I have a business called The Solution Is Sleep. Um, and I, I have several packages that I offer. Uh, the first is just kind of your comprehensive sleep assessment and consultation. And so this is for an individual who may be thrown off for their sleep for a shorter period of time or is, or is looking just to augment their sleep. So again, they may say, I sleep okay, but I think it could be better and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And what we do is I have them fill out a complete full assessment of their sleep habits, medications, foods, drinks, because there are so many things that can disrupt sleep that most individuals are just not aware of. And then again, we want to rule out those medically related sleep issues. Um, and then we have a one-on-one consultation. I go through all the things that they discuss, and then I give them an individualized sleep plan. So it's a plan that says, okay, this based on what you told me, this is your optimal bedtime. This is the time you should be rising. These are the habits that you need to change or implement to improve your sleep. Um, and then I have a, a cognitive behavioral therapy um uh, kind of process that I give in two ways. So I actually have an online course that breaks down all of the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, principles and it's a self-guided course. So you can go through the course. It's meant to be about five weeks, which you can do it as quickly or as slowly as you want. Um, it goes through all of the processes. There are videos of me, so I'm like talking to you, but through the videos, it takes you through sleep logs and different practices for sleep. Um, you get to do that at your own pace. And then I have uh, my cognitive behavioral therapy where I individually meet with uh, that client every week. We have an hour-long session. There are videos and things that they have access to throughout the week, but then I personally review their sleep logs. We make uh, changes based on how things went the night before. They're able to ask any questions that they have. We talk about helpful sleep supplements and things that they can um, that they can implement. So it just depends on how much help is needed uh, in terms of the, the sleep issues and sleep struggles and whether someone needs that kind of one-on-one attention or if they're like, okay, as long as you give me the principles and you give me what I need, I can kind of get through it myself. So any of those things are options. Okay. So how do people reach you? Uh, several ways. So you can go onto my website, thesolutionissleep.com. Uh, there's a contact tab. I have a blog as well that that lays out different kind of uh, sleep issues or sleep recommendations. I have some product recommendations and things I really like for sleep. So feel free to just browse through there. I sell my sleep mask, my blackout Bluetooth sleep mask on there. So uh, you can definitely uh, go out there. You can email me at thesolutionissleep at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach me on my Instagram, the sleep underscore MD. And again, I try to uh, put out informative, uh, sometimes entertaining information on there, but just to reach <laughs> the masses about different sleep issues. Uh, I'm always open to answer questions. People reach out to me all the time. Like, hey, doc, I just, you know, have this question. Is this okay? And, you know, I'm definitely open to that. So any of those routes will be totally fine. All right. And as we wrap up, any uh, last tips that you can give individuals who suffer from insomnia? Yeah, the first I would say is prioritize sleep. And what I mean is start your day with sleep in mind. Have your time that you're going to go to sleep. 
make that your protected time. Make it your me time is really what I say. Like make your, your sleep routine something you look forward to. You could de-stress, wind down from the day, like absolutely. And then two, don't be afraid to ask for help. I love that you say your patients come to you about sleep because I think oftentimes people just feel that sleep struggles are just a part of life, especially if you're a parent and you're working, but it doesn't have to be. And you can be living a much more optimal life if you're getting good sleep. So prioritize it. If you feel like you're doing that and you're still not getting the results you want, don't be afraid to ask for help or seek help. And put yourself and your health first by putting your sleep All right. And as with every episode, I always end with Randy's random questions. So I'm going to ask you some off-the-cuff questions. I like to put people on the hot seat. So you ready for Randy's random questions? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. So question number one, if you were happen to be sleepwalking, where would you end up at out of all random places? Yep. I see your face is like, yeah, that's a random question. So that's like me, if I was to probably sleepwalk, I may end up like at a donut shop because donuts are my favorite food or I might end up at a gym playing basketball. So if someone said they found me sleepwalking and I ended up there, no, nobody would be surprised. So where would you end up? And they called your husband and said, oh, your wife, Dr. Holiday Bell is here. And he wouldn't be surprised that you were there. Uh, the mall, probably, because I went to shop. <laughs> the All mall right. or Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> what store in the mall would you be at? You know, it's interesting. That It's changed. It's evolved over time. I, let's see. I don't even, I do a lot of online shopping too. I just like the experience of shopping in the mall. I'll probably say mm -hmm. Windsor is a good, is a store that I like a lot uh, now. But honestly, whatever mall that sells women, or whatever store that sells women's clothing, I will go with. Zara is, is the one that I like too. So okay. What made you major in biotechnology? Um, yeah, so I got I, I got my master's in biotechnology because I thought that I wanted to do uh, more bench research once I became a physician. So I did a lot of research. Bench research is like, you know, working with uh, things at a molecular level and, you know, working in the lab. I did a lot of that in college and I wanted to learn how to translate that into uh, a clinical realm. So going from the kind of small, like submolecular level to the patient level. So I did a master's in biotechnology that was kind of focused on transitional research. Learned a lot, learned that that was not necessarily my goal anymore, but <laughs> I did enjoy the time and effort. I'm sure you look at the world differently in medicine having that type of background. Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. I think, you know, I see a lot about how, you know, things that, um, seems like they wouldn't affect uh, someone on a more global or clinical scale, how that could affect it. And so that's how mm -hmm. what it causes me to like break down things a little bit more. Okay, what's my hypothesis? How would I go through, you know, getting this from this kind of idea stage to outcomes that affect patients? So I think that part was helpful, but I, I definitely like more of the hands-on actual clinical research as opposed to the more pitch work. Okay, last question. What's the most random combination of foods that you like that people will be like, oh, why does she eat those two things together? Like for me, it might be like some baked beans with some potato salad, like at, at a barbecue or something. I might put my beans on top of my potato salad. That's just something random that I do. Is there anything random that you eat that people would kind of side eye you for? I don't think I have. Like I'm a very clean eater. My husband actually makes fun of me all the time because I'm like a vanilla <laughs> ice cream, you know, cheese pizza. Like I'm pretty plain. Okay. I would say similarly, you know, for my for my soul food eaters dressing like on Thanksgiving and like Christmas, I have to have potato salad on my dressing. Like that's the way I, I eat the combination. If one is gone before the other, then I'm just done with both of those those dishes. Like I have to have it. All right. So Dr. Holiday Bell goes to Subway and gets peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. She keeps it just very simple, <laughs> very plain. Like, that's all I want, just PB&J. Like, ma'am, we don't sell that. Like, that's that's all I want. So we're going to let you off the high seat. I appreciate you sitting down and being part of the podcast with me for today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Like I said, anytime. It was such a good time chatting with you, and I hope that everyone found this helpful.
Sleep is a very important aspect of our lives and most people don't get enough of it. Or if they do, they're not getting good quality sleep. If you're suffering from insomnia, I hope you use some of the techniques outlined by Dr. Holiday Bell. Set a sleep routine, only use a bed for sleep and intercourse, decrease your screen time before going to bed, so cutting off the TV and your phone, maybe about 30 minutes or an hour before bed, so you wanna have that blue light effect on your brain. And if you're having trouble falling asleep, get up, go do a quiet activity, fold some clothes, do a little reading, stare out the window. No, don't stare out the window. That, that doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> Go do a quiet activity. Reset your brain because it's not doing you any justice by just laying in the bed, staring at the clock. Go reset your brain and try to get back in the bed and fall asleep again. Be sure to check out Dr. Holiday Bell's website and follow her on social media. Those links are located in the show description along with mine. So follow me on social media at underscore Dr. Randy. Also check out my website, drrandymd.com. So I'm about to go to sleep. Gonna turn my box fan on, set my air at about 67, and throw on the weighted blanket I mentioned earlier. I'm telling y'all, the weighted blanket is the truth. Check it out. You can find it on Amazon. That's where I got mine from. See you all next week, and as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.